So would you join me in Nehemiah 6? We're going to pick up in verse 15 today, where we left off last week, and then actually go through all of 6 in the first five verses of chapter 7, because there is a chapter break here, but there's actually a carryover. What happens at the beginning of 7 is in direct response to what's happening at the end of chapter 6. So join me, Nehemiah 6. 15, and we read in verse 15, uh, one of the least known best verses in all the scripture. Now, hopefully you go, oh, really? One of the best verses in all scripture? Let me show you uh, what I mean. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul in... The wall was completed, forget the month because you don't know what that month is. The wall was completed in how long? The wall was completed in 52 days. Now, uh, by a show of hands, uh, does that surprise you? Do you? Did you think it would have taken longer than that? Yeah, if you thought about it at all, that makes you go, seriously? 52 days. Do you understand that means we would have started on July 14th and been done today? That's crazy. In case you lost perspective, how long? Two and a half miles. How high? 39 feet high. How wide? Eight feet wide. And they had completed that broken wall in 52 days. What'd you do yesterday? <laughs> Seriously. Oh, I, I got the trash out. And I, I mowed my yard. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that is absolutely wow. So I don't know what word comes to your mind, but I think it's, well, I don't think. It is astounding, astounding to the point that look what Everyone else at that time surrounding Jerusalem thought. Next verse, verse 16. When all our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, so some people saw it with their own eyes, other people heard that that city wall is completed, they lost their confidence. For they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. See, I, I love what, what this wall now represents. This wall becomes this giant billboard to the nations, to, to people who could see it, and beyond the people who could see it, to people who could hear about it, they were like, wow, wow what? Wow what? Wow. <laughs> I was wrestling with this verse because uh, I always read from and teach from the New American Standard. And it, it said, New American Standard, they recognized this work had been accomplished with the help of our God, which Made perfect sense to me. Uh, but when I start a passage, I almost always read it in a number of different versions to see how other people 
translate a text. And I was more than a little surprised when I came to the New King James Version that says they perceived that this work was done by our God. Is that a difference? That's a huge difference, folks. I was like, okay, New American Standard, which I almost always count on as being... We teach from it because it's generally accepted as the most literal translation, the one closest to the original Hebrew text. So I was like, help of our God versus done by our God, which is it? Now, a little confession here. You may think, oh, so you went back and studied the Hebrew. Well, I did, but I don't know Hebrew. If that freaks you out, sorry, I don't know Hebrew. But I don't need to know Hebrew because there's a ton of resources. In fact, you have these available to you. I simply went online and went, let me see an interlinear of what the Hebrew words there. And if you were reading it exactly, first of all, you have to read it backwards. If you try and do this, you'll be like, oh, this is really confusing. Hebrew moves from right to left, not left to right. And so you read it backwards and you go, what is missing from the Hebrew? No, God's not missing. The help. That's not in the text. So I would be rare to ever say this, but I think the New American Standard actually blew it on Nehemiah 6.16 and that the New King James Version actually gets it more accurate. In fact, they're the only ones who say it this clearly. They perceive this work was done by our God. That makes a dramatic difference in my thinking. Did God help me or did God do it? <laughs> Sometimes when folks come to our house, Jackie will say, oh, when we bought it, didn't have all this crown molding in here. And Doug did this. And they, they go, Doug, you, you did this? And then it's a moment of truth. <laughs> I did buy the wood. And I did hold the other end of the wood while another guy actually cut the proper angle. And I did hold the other end of the 16-foot wall while the other guy fitted in the corner and made it look so good. So did I do it? I helped. It was, you don't want my number. You want the number of the other guy, right? You see, I think... I think there's the helper and there's the guy and the new American standard gets it wrong. God is, if you can understand what I'm saying here, God is the guy. He's the one whose number you want, not mine. Does that make a difference? Oh man. If, if, if God is at work through you, remember, it's God is at work through you. Is your company doing great? Don't think too highly of yourself. Seriously. It's easy. It's easy to look at things going well and go, yeah, no, God's helping me. If you're the guy, God help you. And I don't mean it that way. It makes all the difference that we understand. Well, did the Israelites participate in the process? Sure, absolutely. I think it's best to understand this way. God, quite frankly, could have used anyone, but no one could have done it without the Lord. You see the difference? Being the guy versus being the, the helper. 
we get it wrong, we think too highly of ourselves and too small of God. When we get it right, we think <laughs> little of ourselves and much of God, which is exactly what happened in the text, did it not? Uh, yeah. See, this giant billboard that says, wow, <laughs> says, wow, God, God is great. I love that the nations didn't miss it. The nations who saw it, the nations who heard of it, they recognized that is not a human endeavor right there. That is their God. They recognize that God is great and that their God works on behalf of his children. See, and this giant billboard that says, wow, God, and, and wow, does God, does, does God work on behalf of his children? It says not only something about him. Did you notice what else it said about themselves? Verse 16, when all heard of it and all their nations around us saw it, they lost. Yeah, they went, whoop. Those who had thought, we're powerful, we're strong, recognized. They're not, not in relation to Israel, but in relation to the God of Israel. See, this giant billboard says, wow, God. Wow, God works on behalf of his children. <laughs> and wow, no one can stand against our God. No one. That, that's what they recognize. So that's why I say verse 15 is one phenomenal verse because that wall becomes this giant billboard for the greatness of God and the work of God through his people. Which then begs the question, what is the billboard in our day? It's not our <laughs> build a wall. No. Yeah. I find it interesting that for hundreds and hundreds of years in the church, what was the billboard? The building. Just take a tour around the world and you'll soon discover that some of the greatest architecture, some of the most amazing buildings ever built in their time were the, were the churches. And it was because the thought was, as the wall in Nehemiah was a billboard to the greatness of God, we want to build cathedrals to the greatness of God. But the answer to this question is not an architectural one. It's a theological one. What is the billboard of our day is indeed where God dwells, but he doesn't dwell in a facility. He dwells within his people. So suddenly this, this 615 and 16 become very personal because that which Nehemiah built, the restoring of the broken and the burn, the wall was a testament to the greatness of our God and the call upon my life, the call upon your life as a child of God is, do people look 
and experience wow God. See, it's not stained glass and high steeples. It's why we build a, a utilitarian room and seek to live supernatural lives. Because this is not the billboard. This is the billboard. It's portable. <laughs> it goes home, goes to work, goes to school. God intend the wow God to be on our day. The wall, Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and see the same thing and glorify your Father who's in heaven. You see, it's just live lives in a manner that so when people look at you, they respond like they did when they looked at the wall. Not while you, while, while God, your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven because they recognize that which is being done in you and that which is being done through you is way beyond you. That yes, God can use anybody, but nobody could do what we do apart from God. You see? The billboard, we've said it multiple times. The new billboards are the life and the works of disciples of Jesus. So this, this whole rebuilding of the, the wall, you see, bring it back to this pile of rubble that we've had with us now since April. It's when, it's when God works through you in restoring that people go, wow, wow, God. And so often, so often, and we're, and we're guilty of this, friends, that when God works through us, we go, wow, and then we put a name. We accredit an individual. We accredit a ministry. We put the, that, the name of the individual. We put the name of the ministry on the billboard instead of the greatness of our God. So let's be people who by our good works glorify our Father who's in heaven. That's the Nehemiah wall. So it's finished. But <laughs> more is going on. Uh, look back with me now in verse 17. The wall is up, but nor, more needs to be done because here's what we discover. Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah. Remember Tobiah? Sambalad and Tobiah, the, the two most visible, uh, obvious enemies of Nehemiah and, and what he was doing. Uh, letters went from the nobles of Judah. That's connected to now Jerusalem, the Israelites. Their nobles to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. It's like the... Enemies, if you will, are corresponding. Why? 
Next verse. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, that is Tobiah, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehoiahanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. You got that? Yeah, try and draw that out. And when you're done drawing it out, study all the names. And then you'll go, yeah, I still don't get it. <laughs> you won't get the detail. I'll, I'll save you the work here. The detailed study of all these names and trying to follow the, the family intermarrying is not going to help you. It's just a principle that those then would have understand who was who. But we get this. There was inner turmoil because of marriages between those who were for what Nehemiah was doing with those who were against what Nehemiah was doing. And so the wall is done, but there's still resistance. Verse 19, moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds Tobiah, the guy who's against him, they're talking about his good deeds in my presence and reporting my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. And here we go, as usual, frighten, fear, always. Always something we're going to deal with. So, you know, one of the things we have to recognize is that there will always be, as the people of God, those who are outside the people of God who are against us. What's sometimes harder to deal with and um, a little more painful, stings a little bit more, is when it's internal. It's when there's brokenness, division, and talking, not outside the church against the church, but inside the church against the church against the work of God. So he's done with a wall, but he's not finished. There's, and we're, this, this section we're looking at this morning, we'll get, jump in fully in a couple of weeks. This section is a transition from Nehemiah as the, leading a physical work to Nehemiah leading a relational work. Nehemiah leading a rebuilding of a physical wall to Nehemiah rebuilding the people of God. And, and it starts out of this, that it's not just enemy on the outside, it's enemy from within. So what's he do? He meets a couple extra needs here. Verse one of chapter seven. Now, when the wall was rebuilt and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, how's that to get confusing, Hananiah and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. So he's finished, but he's not done. He needs not only a physical work, but a relational work. And so the first thing he does is he meets this need of involving more godly people in the work. He involves more 
godly people. All three words matter. More godly people. He recognizes if the work of God is going to continue, he has to invite more people in with him. Now, uh, we could, uh, if we were doing a church seminar, there'd be lots of application for how we deal with this as a church. But let's just talk about it as the people of God, individuals. And what I hope you'll take from this is, are there sufficient amount of godly people involved in your life personally to walk this journey with through whom you will, if you are what we sometimes say, do life with. This is a major moment in Nehemiah where he realizes I need some other brothers with me. So eight days ago, not yesterday, but the Saturday before, we had in here a homegoing service for one of our long-term, long-time members, Patty Robertson, who had been part of our worship ministry. And this room was, was largely full as we did the service. What was compelling, one of the things that was compelling to me about that service was uh, four ladies stood up here and shared their journey with Patty as the five of them had been together, some of them for as long as 30 years. Meeting on a weekly basis, praying for one another, spurring one another on, knowing one another, encouraging one another. And it's pretty hard to go to a funeral and not ask yourself, a pretty basic question, what will be said about the life you lived? Almost everybody, when you go to a funeral, you go, what will be said about the life I lived? How will I be remembered? What was so compelling as I sat right over here was, who will speak as the closest of companions and, and relationship that you have done life with. Now, maybe you think that's, that's, a little, uh, that's a little too heavy for me. Have you cultivated relationship with folks to the degree that when your day comes, that there will be people who will be able to say, <laughs> we did life together. We prayed for one another. We encouraged one another. We spurred one another on to love and to good works. It wasn't just a short-term relationship. It was long-term. We watched our kids be born. We watched our kids grow up. Now, maybe you're more transient than that, and you've only been here a few years. Don't wait. I only thought I'd be in Jacksonville for three years back in 1986. Don't wait. <laughs> Do what Nehemiah did. Invite godly people 
into your life and be that person where you would do life with them. What type of people? Well, it, it says, Hananiah, I, I think it's referencing Hananiah, uh, the commander of the fortress in charge of Jerusalem, faithful and feared God more than many, which is an interesting expression. First, we need people who are faithful. And I simply break the word like that sometimes just to help me understand faithful is faithful. Uh, And if you've been around, you'll recognize here at the chapel we mean that that's not having more faith, but having faith more which is a big difference because sometimes we think, oh, I need big amounts of faith. No, I don't need big amounts of faith. I just need faith more in more and more places in my life. Faith not just in trusting Jesus for my eternity, but faith in trusting Jesus in my marriage, faith in trusting Jesus in my family, faith in trusting Jesus with my neighbors, faith in trusting Jesus in my job, faith in trusting Jesus in my finances, faith in every area of life. Not big, not, not more faith, but faith more. So people who were faithful. You probably have people in your life. Do you have godly, faithful people in your life? Second, Nehemiah picked a man who feared God more than most. And this is, this is such a challenging statement to me <clears throat> because we understand the scripture speaks repeatedly. If you're wondering, is it appropriate to fear the Lord? Yes, the scripture says we're to fear the Lord, but it feels awkward because fear the Lord, uh, we're supposed to be scared of him. I thought we were to love the Lord. How do we love the Lord and fear the Lord? And so most people, when they talk about a definition of the fear of the Lord, they talk about an awe and respect, uh, which has never done anything for me. In the sense of, that doesn't say to me, fear the Lord. So I shared with you a few weeks ago that for this study, I've, I have really wrestled with what really is the fear of the Lord, fear of the Lord. Something that, that I would go, that speaks all in respect. Maybe it does to you, doesn't help me. So uh, here's what I've concluded regarding the fear of the Lord. The dread. If you think that's too strong, I think the fear of the Lord is intended to be strong. The fear of the Lord is not soft. The dread of being found in opposition to the righteous judge of all the earth. Now, again, uh, I want to be clear. That's not, that's not a, a verse in the Bible. So if you don't like that, you don't have to take it. <laughs> If you think it's too strong, I think all and respect are too soft. One of the conversations that helped me was when my son said, so when it come, when you fear a lion, 
Is it because you have awe and respect for a lion or is it because it could tear you to shreds if you given that opportunity or reason? You may go, I don't know if I wanna think about the Lord that way. No, there is, there is friends. He is the righteous judge of all the earth. That, that is directly from scripture. And the scripture says that if we are in opposition to him, we will experience his wrath. And that should, if we have not, this is the power of the gospel of grace. If we have not placed our faith in Jesus who took our wrath, that we, the wrath of God we deserved and took it upon himself, the, the scripture says it in 1 John 2, the propitiation, the satisfying of God's wrath. That if we have not trusted in him, we are in opposition to the righteous judge of all the earth and we will experience his wrath. There should be a fear of the Lord. Now that may beg the question then, well, so once I've trusted in Jesus, should I still fear the Lord? Yes. Because though you may no longer be under the wrath of God, is he still the righteous judge of all the earth? Yes. yes. And does he discipline his children? Yes. Yeah, he does discipline his children. If you think, ah, I don't know about that, just remember Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira professing followers of Jesus who said they gave more than they actually gave. And both of them struck dead by the Lord for lying to the Holy Spirit. And inappropriate, it says, and a fear spread throughout the church. Appropriate. You see, there is, there is, an appropriate understanding in my heart that through Jesus, I am no longer under the wrath of God. <laughs> but I still understand the righteous judge of all the earth will always work for his glory. And when I am in opposition to him, my pride is in opposition to him. He says, God is against the proud. He resists the proud gives grace, grace to the humble. So there is an appropriate fear of the Lord. I think this man, Hananiah, who had been the commander of the fortress, had demonstrated by his own leadership thus far that calls Nehemiah to select him, that, that he wanted to live in a manner that his life was in line with the Lord, not in opposition to the Lord. And there are moments for all of us every single day where we can align ourselves with the Lord or we can, whether it's in sinful decisions or pride within our heart or a neglect that we can put ourselves in opposition to the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is, in my estimation, the dread of being in that opposition to the righteous judge of all the earth. Does that mean he's not gracious? No. 
He is gracious. Does he love his children? Yes. In fact, that's why he disciplines. So, I don't want us. You can, you can wrestle with this in your own personal life. Do you fear the Lord? Because the scripture says, it's the beginning of wisdom. And just think about that. It's the beginning of going, no, I do not want to be in opposition to the righteous judge of all the earth. That's the beginning of wisdom right there. So he involves godly men, faithful who fear God in his life. Next, verse 3. Then I said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. (laughs) Now, is the sun always hot? Yes. So what's he mean? (laughs) Yeah, until the sun is up and you are feeling the heat of the hot sun. Uh, Don't let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also, appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem each at his post, and each in front of his own house. The city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. So the wall is done, but what is he recognizing? We still are at risk. And so we're most at risk when the gates are open, if they would be open at night. So don't open them up. Until we can see clearly. Because bad stuff happens at night. (laughs) In the dark. So is he appoints and includes new godly people. And then he establishes some protective practices. The wall is rebuilt. But there is still some protective practices that need to be accomplished. Are there, are there protective practices that you've established in your life uh, to protect you from temptation? The scripture actually gives us a number of protective practices. Let me run through a few quickly. Uh, one of them, Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. That's a protective practice so that you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A commitment to regularly gather is a protective practice in our lives. Confess your sin to one another that you might be healed. Confession of sin is a protective practice practice from a calloused, hardening heart. Third, not letting the sun go down on your anger. That's a protective practice that bitterness does not find a root in your heart. It's a protective practice. Praying with thanksgiving It's a protective practice. Praying with, with what? Thanksgiving. 
It's a protective practice from God is my genie in a bottle who I just go to to get what I need and what I want. It's the protective practice from putting my trust in an outcome, but instead putting my trust in the God who always does what is best, whether I see it or not. Praying with what? Thanksgiving. That's a protective practice. You can pray a ton, but if it's without thanksgiving, it's going to change your heart. And then there's simply practical protective practices. If you have kids, you probably have some sort of filter of what's allowed in your home. That's that's a protective practice. Or maybe you have a rule that you simply say, all computers are used in public spaces in our house. It's a protective practice. We have protective practices here as a church staff. We have windows cut into our office doors. So there's no hiding behind office doors. Uh, We have an understanding that I would not have lunch with another woman if her name is not Jackie, Abby, Christy, or Shannon. That's my wife. I don't have four wives. I have a wife and three daughters. (laughs) So I, I wouldn't have a lunch with another woman in the congregation. And I, I felt the wisdom of that one Friday night years ago. We're out to dinner, other side of town with our neighbors. <laughs> and as soon as we walk into this restaurant, we sit down and my wife gets up and goes to the restroom. And like 10 seconds later, her husband gets up and goes to the restroom. And here I am on the other side of town with a, my neighbor's wife. <laughs> and seriously, I was like, how did we get here? And so I said to her, Cindy, uh, if I see anybody from the church, I'm inviting them over and we're going to talk to them until our spouses return. (laughs) So, do you have protective practices? You may think, oh, that's silly. Many have fallen who thought the initial things were silly. So there's no guarantee that the protective practices uh, will spare you. But they will help. And then verse 5. Then God, my God, put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Uh, The specific of what happened here is not nearly as important as what it says there. What happened? God put something in Nehemiah's heart. After the wall was, watch, after the wall was finished, because God had put that in his heart, you may go, oh, he's done. No, the wall is finished, but the work is not done. God put something new in his heart. Does he still do such things? Does God still put? Yeah, God still puts things into our hearts and I want us to be encouraged to listen for such things. I'm gonna invite Kristen Lewis to come on up. Kristen uh, did not ask to do this. We ask her, come on up, Kristen. We ask her to do this. So she is not uh, red carpet eating her righteousness, if that's 
Sounds familiar. And we heard this, and I wanted this to encourage you that God still puts things in our hearts. You're good. Do you feel a tension in your spirit, in your heart, when you encounter the needy or homeless on a corner, at a stoplight, or in a parking lot? I felt conflicted in those moments too. I know God loves the needy and he hears their cries and I want to acknowledge and help them because God has acknowledged and helped me. But most often in the past, because I felt tension about what to do, I've simply avoided their gaze and drove or walked past them. Even though in my heart, I've known that they are my neighbors and I am ignoring people whom God loves. During one of the Nehemiah sermons last month, God prodded my heart once more to be attentive to the cry of those in need and to take action. In the closing moments of the service, we were encouraged to listen for the Spirit of God to speak to us. And in just that quick, quiet moment, he brought together an idea for me for encouraging and helping the needy that I encounter. He gave me the idea to make these Bible care packages. This care package contains a complete Bible, a Chick-fil-A gift card, and a note sharing the gospel and giving them the information for the city rescue mission. In my note, I say, no matter what brought you to this point in your life, there is hope for a future better than today. You are loved. You are not overlooked or forgotten. God sees you and knows your name. He does not avoid your gaze or ignore your cries. Then at the end of my note, I say that I have given you two gifts, a gift card for a meal at Chick-fil-A and a Bible. One meal at Chick-fil-A will only satisfy your hunger for a few hours, but God's words in the Bible are living water that satisfy the soul. Now when I see a needy neighbor, I do not have to look away. Instead, I can quickly pray and give the person a care package. While, while doing so, I ask them their name and I tell them that I'll be praying for them. So would you consider joining me in making your own care packages? Or is it time for you to step out and take action towards the burden that God has placed in your heart? We want to remain attentive to the Spirit's leading. He put it in Nehemiah's heart, put it in Kristen's heart. Maybe he's put something in your heart that you've been sitting on. Or maybe this morning. The Lord will put something on your heart. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. We know the voice of our Savior. And we know the voice of the Lord by knowing this voice. So that we are ready and prepared to hear his voice in those quiet moments where he puts something in our hearts. So bow with me. 
And let's be attentive. Attentive to how the Lord may be speaking to us. Maybe you were reminded this morning that it's God who's big, not you. And you would want to say to the Lord right now, Lord, I confess my pride, my thoughts that, that you've helped, but, but that I've done it. Confess to the Lord any pride. Or maybe you recognize there's isolation. There are not folks in, in your life. Or you've grown lax in protective practices. And you're at risk. Or maybe, maybe this is a quiet moment where you would invite the Holy Spirit to put something that is in line with his will and his purposes, what he would want you specifically to do in terms of the broken and the burned. Our bodies are the billboards. So as an expression of our prayer, let's simply invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to have full work in our hearts.
friends, as we invite the Holy Spirit, say you're welcome here. We don't mean a building. We mean where he inhabits the believer. He inhabits us. As we go, let's say, Lord, you are welcome here to lead, to discipline where necessary, to encourage when we need it. Lord, we want to surrender to you. So I pray that as God's people, we would go empowered in the spirit and would we be, as Doug said, would be billboards for the goodness, the greatness of our God. If we can pray for you anyway, we have some men and women between um, between the auditoriums that are there and, and ready to pray with you personally if they could bless you in that way. I hope you have a great uh, rest of your long weekend. We'll see you next time. God bless.